Hello and welcome to the third and final part of this episode of A Rock and a Hard Place, in which I have been talking to Dr. Corby Anderson to explore these issues around mining and education in the United States, how this impacts our ability to compete on the global stage, what this means for the mining sector, and what he sees as the challenges for our future. If you haven't listened to the first two parts of this episode, I suggest you go back and do that now. Otherwise, enjoy the show. From your perspective, why do minerals matter? And I mean, that's a no-brainer that you know for those that are working in this industry. But if you had to tell someone who knew nothing about minerals tomorrow why they matter in a few sentences, what would you say? And that kind of always gives us an understanding of what your perspective is on the mineral and extraction side. Okay, why do minerals matter? Um, well, they matter because they have built and sustained uh, the type of lifestyle that we like and enjoy and expect, right? So in the case of aluminum or other things, you know, we just have gotten used to um, the convenience that minerals and metals have provided for us. And there's also, I think, an expectation um, that that things will not only always be that way, but they will always get better. I mean, you know, you go buy your cell phone and um, in two years they say, hey, it's time to get a new one and it's improved. And we and you go, oh, I got my new cell phone or your computer. Oh, it's got more capacity. Okay, so there's this expectation in the modern world of not only thing, are things pretty good, we take them for granted, but there's always going to be something better, right? Well, all of that depends upon minerals, metals, materials, and even more so these days than in the past. The disconnect is, you know, when you go, if you have still a fossil-fueled vehicle, when you go to um, put gasoline, or in the UK, petrol, in your automobile, um, usually it's done by you and you can smell the fumes you go, Ooh, that's, mm, mm, that must be oil. That must be from, you know, so you understand the connection, right? There's a connection of, of, yeah, oil comes from the ground. And then when you sit in your home in a nice chair or look at a table and it's made out of wood, you go, Oh, got it. That table is made of wood and wood comes from trees. I have some trees in my yard. I understand that. But when you pick up an aluminum can to drink a beverage um, and you summarily just recycle it or throw it away or both, um, the connection of where that came from can be a little vague. And if you don't understand it, um, you, you accept the fact that you need it and you like it, but where it comes from or how it got to you it can be a mystery. And so I think that's that's part of the problem is, um, you know, in the Western world, we've gone from being more rural to more urban. And so I think back in the day, people understood um, where things came from. They understood that if you sat down and had a steak, um, it came from the, the cows out in the field, right? And um, same thing with minerals and materials. Nowadays, you know, you go to a store or somewhere, or even if that, you, you go on Amazon and they deliver something to you. Um, you know, it's hard to make a connection. And and even if you do, people say, well, that's great. I, you know, I need aluminum. I just don't want it close to my house. Can we do it in Jamaica or somewhere? And so 
Um, we need to educate people that um, minerals and metals are the underpinning of our modern society. We're going to be more dependent upon them. Uh, if we want to have electric vehicles, we, uh, an electric vehicle is going to take twice as much copper as a normal vehicle. We have to understand that. And we, we need to understand that while you don't like something happening in your backyard, um, abdicating your responsibility for how the minerals and metals are produced, even though you want them, is a bit of a disconnect. And oftentimes, if you do these things in your backyard, they're better for everybody than if you export them to a place where maybe they don't do it as well. But I don't know how you get that message across, you know? When you eat your sandwich and it's wrapped in aluminum, what do you do with the aluminum? Do you recycle it? Probably not. You throw it in the wastebasket, right? Because there's plenty more, plenty more, right? Well, in 1880, there wasn't, right? I think there was a whole 10 tons produced worldwide, and it was very precious. So, and this is a modern metal. So, I, I don't know. Um, it's a, um, it's an educational problem, I would say, um, or a perception problem. Okay, so. Yeah, no, 100%. I mean, I think it's the time to be alive, and there's a lot of pressing issues that need to be handled, but I think that, you know, in some regards, that's what makes some of this exciting. So I'm wondering, one, how do you get students or get, I guess, the public interested and excited about mining and getting them wanting to get in these fields and come to this Colorado School of Mines? And two, what type of skills should they have or should they be honing in right now um, if they plan to get into a career uh, in the extractive side of things or processing? So what are the skills and then how do you get them excited? First of all, first of all and foremost, um, there has to be an institution available with the capacity to do what you want, right? Um, if you go to the supermarket and you want to buy 400 pounds of beefsteak and your shopping cart only holds um, 30 pounds, you got a problem. So one of the intrinsic problems we have is that um, if we're talking about mineral processing, extractive metallurgy in the United States, but other places, is these programs have eroded in terms of number of faculty. Okay, so um, if the institution that you want to build does not have the capacity, then there's no sense recruiting. I mean, this year I've had 11 graduate students, okay? I can't take anymore, right? I'm up to capacity. So I don't, I can get all the graduate students I want. I don't need anymore, and I have to fund them too, right? So there is this erosion of institutions of higher learning and it's difficult to recruit faculty or convince administrators that you need more faculty if you can find them to sustain these so the recruitment as i tell people that's great but you recruit them and you have nowhere for them to go it doesn't make any sense so that's that's problem one okay i'm 65 years old i'm the last faculty member that was hired in our Kroll Institute, tenure, tenure track. I'm 65, okay? So even though the Colorado School of Mines has a history of extractive metallurgy, even they have not put a lot of resources into sustaining it. Um, we would not have a problem recruiting students for one reason or another, and particularly grad students. Um, so that's a separate issue. And I think there's other institutions in the United States and maybe Canada, Australia, in the same boat. Now, um, how do you... How do you encourage them? Um, I think once the students understand the 
true nature of the business and the positive impacts they can have, not only technically and socially, and the amazing financial opportunities that there are uh, and the global nature of it, it's not too hard to attract them. It really isn't. It's just getting the message out so that they understand and comprehend uh, what's going on. And I mean, the, the opportunities right now for young people graduating this field are freaking amazing. I get calls for people. I had one the other day. Well, we'd like to, um, to get a hold of some of your sophomore students, your second year students. And I said, well, I think they're mostly gone now because they get hired for internships in the summer. The, there is a complete growing lack of technical talent in this field, right? I get two or three calls a week. I need people. I need, you know, I mean, it's, um, it's like free agency in, um, in American football or soccer right now. You know, I mean, these kids can name their price, right? And, um, that takes it into the educational part, which is, um, I know the skills that they need, the difficulty, uh, and these are, you know, math and chemistry and physics, and then applied courses in, underpinning that in thermodynamics and transport phenomena um, and and then um, mineral processing, hydrometallurgy, electrometallurgy, pyrometallurgy, things like that, right? Um, with the erosion of programs, they get, unlike our Chinese colleagues, they get an overview of these things, but the depth is difficult to get through because of constraints on either faculty uh, or constraints on timing to graduate them, right? So um, while they get a flavor these days, it's not anything like the education I got 40 years ago. And maybe that's, maybe that's different. But, um, and so when they emerge, um, are they ready? Well, that's a question. We need more people. Um, certainly they're employed right away. Um, they come out you know, of colleges and universities right now, um, I think with less fundamental skills. And so one of the ideas that's there is, well, they'll be mentored on the job. Well, you have to think about it. The reason there's so much demand for their skills when they graduate is because there's so few people. So if you have a few people and you need more, but they're inexperienced and you say, we'll mentor them on the job, in the first place, you didn't have a lot of people. How much time do you think they're going to have to mentor new people? That's a problem, right? So, I mean, I, I see this, you know, I see it as great opportunity for young graduates. And I mean, I can speak to my own son. He's 35 years old. He's a process manager for a company in Minnesota. They do recycling. Uh, when I was 35 years old, there was no process managers because, you know, Back then, uh, there was more people in the business, right? And that's not, that's not denigrating his skills, but it's just the lay of the land. Um, so here we are, and, you know, we bang the drum about uh, critical materials and critical minerals and doing all these things. And, um, you know, we're limiting um, the ability to mine and process them. And then even if we do, we are in a death spiral in terms of technical talent. So I don't, at least in the Western world, so I don't know how all of these things are 
going to pan out, you know. Um, if I have an electrical problem in my house, I want an electrician. I don't want a plumber. Um, I can hire a plumber, but then he would have to train to be an electrician, right? So this is this is a predicament I think we're in. I'm not saying it's all negative because there's opportunities for these these people, but um, you know, it's it's not a simple thing. And 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 when extractive metallurgy performs, um, it has large societal impacts. Uh, you look at the Kroll Institute and what William Kroll did, and he worked in hand in hand, by the way, with the U.S. Bureau of Mines, which no longer exists. That went out of existence over 25 years ago. There's no singular agency in the United States that um, represents uh, the resource, at least the mineral resource sector anymore. It's gone. Uh, well, it's not gone. It's just not funded. Uh, I guess they can show up to their job, but they won't get paid. Um, but you look at what he did with his work, which is relatively recent. He created functional materials, titanium and zirconium, that were completely unavailable. And that changed our society. Where would an airplane be without titanium? Where would a nuclear submarine or reactor be without zirconium? Wouldn't exist. You can go back to the late 1800s. Um, we all take aluminum for granted. We have aluminum cans for our beverages. Uh, we have aluminum in vehicles. Uh, we wrap sandwiches in aluminum. And then when we're done with them, we throw it away because it's just cheap and available. Well, um, that wasn't always true. Uh, aluminum was, back in the Napoleonic age, was a precious metal. When Napoleon used to serve uh, meals to his preferred guests on aluminum um, dining ware, and it was kept in a safe because aluminum was difficult to process, even though it makes up a large part of the Earth's crust. And um, incredibly, in 1887, um, uh, Bayer came up with the process to create purified alumina. And then um, two young people who were in their early 20s, um, um, Hall and Hero, simultaneously, but with no knowledge of each other, came up with an efficient, effective way to reduce it to aluminum metal. And process basically exists today. And aluminum production is the second largest, um, if you want to call it, metal business in the world behind iron and steel. And we take it for granted. Um, huge impact from extracted metallurgy. Huge impact from people who uh, were motivated to uh, look into these things in depth and um, create them, right? And moving forward, these are the kind of things we need, right? I mean, I just, this morning when I woke up, uh, I saw that the rare earths prices, of, which are benchmarked, I think, by the Chinese, are the highest they've been in 10 years. And, of course, that was the last surge, 2011. And here we are, we're back. Um, we've made some advances in rare earths um, in the Western world, but there's no separation or production of rare earths or permanent magnets, which is the main product, in North America right now. Uh, the world's best and largest rare earth mine, which is the Mountain Pass Mine in California, is up and running. And some money from the Department of Defense has gone in to help them. But the materials are mined, concentrated, and guess where they go? They go to China. 
So um, we still have some supply chain issues and, or otherwise, although there has been some inroads. I know that um, the Mount Weld mine in Australia has been up and running and they ship things to Malaysia. And I think they're talking about doing something in the United States. Here we are 10 years later after, you know, there was press, uh, the, the Chinese shut off the Japanese for rare earths because of an incident. I don't remember what it was, a naval incident, shut them off. And the Japanese, everybody went crazy because rare earths were up. Here we are again. How much have we done? Some, some, as opposed to where we were, have we done enough? Well, can't make permanent magnets in the United States. There's nobody doing it. Um, there's no rare earth metal production in the United States. It's all done somewhere else. You know, even Energy Fuels, which is a uranium producer in the United States, has taken a bold move. They're taking in monazite concentrates that contain rare earths and treating them and separate them. But the, um, the um, rare earths are not separated and they're sent to Estonia, which is, well, a different country. It's more of an ally. Um, and some of the separations are done over there. So we got nothing. And Europe has nothing. Um, so here we are, 10 years later. Prices are back. Um, you know, the, the Chicken Little is running around saying again, the, the sky is falling, the sky is falling. Um, and um, we've done little or nothing, right? So, yeah. Yeah, no. I mean, well, well said. And I mean, I could sit here and have this conversation with you for hours so thank you so much for your insights. Very, very important. I mean, in the in the timeliness of this and the issues that we're going to be facing in the future and the questions we're going to have to ask. I mean, mm -hmm. conversations mm -hmm. are so critical to that. So, Dr. Anderson, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Maybe have you back for another conversation. It was fantastic. Oh, sure. Thank you for your insights and, and engaging with us. Right. So thank you so much. Yeah. All right. All the best. And thank you for this opportunity. Thank you for listening to A Rock and a Hard Place. We'll be back next week with some more insights into the fascinating world of minerals and why they matter.